qualifications because it'd be hard for us to figure out, well, what, what qualifies? Uh, is it uh, charisma? You know, the person that has the most charisma? Is it the person that has the... Um, the most eloquent person, especially remember Apollos was very eloquent and Paul wasn't apparently that eloquent. And, uh, and there was this big division in the Corinthian church and they were saying, well, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulus. And somebody said, well, I'm of Cephas. And then somebody said, well, I'm of Jesus because they wanted to be a little more spiritual. But the point is, is that it was, uh, they were picking and choosing based on uh, the wrong criteria because Paul says, you know, what is Paul and what is Apollos but servants? And so uh, that, that was uh, a very important part of, of why um, I think Paul is writing here to, to the island of Crete, especially because on the island of Crete, you probably had close to 100 churches probably at this time. So there were churches that were started, and probably a lot of these churches were home churches. You know, we think of big buildings and facilities, but, you know, most of those were meeting in homes. And you can imagine that uh, they may not have been huge homes like, you know, many of us might live in. They were probably, you know, they might have been three or four room homes, maybe even two. And, uh, but they made, uh, the, their homes were places where people came and they worshiped together on, uh, as uh, God's people. And so Paul's interested in, in how, do we, how do we minister to people uh, and, and how do we keep people from following after false teaching? I mean, that's Paul's point here because, uh, and we're going to pick up with verse 9 because we're talking about the first, the first qualifications are really character, character, the character of the person, he says, is more important than anything else because the character of the person is going to give weight to his teaching. If the person's character is suspicious or questionable, then obviously it's going to affect the way that he is able to either do the things that, that Paul tells him that he needs to do. And basically, there are two things that he needs to do. He needs to be able to encourage, he says, and then he's also able to refute those who are teaching false doctrines. So those two things he's going to mention here in verse 9. But let's just pick up with verse 9, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter because I think it, uh, it kind of flows well as to why Paul's saying we need to select people uh, uh, that are... Uh, men who are of upright character, who are above reproach. And that is verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are subordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, and this would not be a biblical prophet. He would just be a prophet of somebody well-known in the Greek culture. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people, who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their conscience, consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And may the Lord add his blessing to his word. Uh, the grass withers and the flower fadeth, but the word of the Lord 
will last and stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And, and Lord, we know that as we open it and as we study it and as we reflect on it, Lord, these words are words that we need to hear uh, because they are the word of God. Uh, Father, they are inspired. They were given to us uh, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God breathed. And Father, as we receive these truths, we ask that we might grow in our appreciation, Lord, of your love for your church and your desire that we would grow in holiness and in the fear of the Lord. And so, Father, we ask that you would bless this time together that we have this morning. And may you, uh, Father, bring glory to your name through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, We've seen in our last couple messages uh, the qualifications for the teaching elders. And so uh, we've been talking about the, the things that were important is character always is more important than giftedness. You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, hey, this person has a great gift, but the important, you know, that gift can be misused. And in 1 Corinthians 13, remember, it says, if you can speak with the tongues of angels and have not love, you're nothing. You're, it says you're sounding or you're, you're like a, a noisy gong. You're just a bunch of noise. And so... Paul's concerned about that because, remember, he says that sound teaching produces godly living. It's not the other way around. Godly living doesn't, you know, necessarily, uh, but he's just saying that, that, God, that sound teaching or preaching of the gospel will produce godly living. But what was happening in Crete was that they were teaching another gospel, and sometimes it's easy to twist the gospel to make it sound good like the gospel, but it really ends up being another gospel. If you add anything to Jesus, if it's Jesus plus, in this case it was Jesus plus circumcision, it could be Jesus plus uh, you have to read your Bible ten times a day. Or Jesus plus you have to, uh, you can't go to any movies. I mean, you know, in other words, godliness is being defined in terms and salvation in terms of something that we do, not in something that God does for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so when it talks about Paul's concerned about godliness, and in fact, in verse one and two, he says that the knowledge of the truth will produce is according with godliness. It accords with godliness, it agrees with godliness. And so when we think about godliness, we're not talking about somebody who uh, is like a monk in a monastery who sits and just reads his Bible all the time. You know, sometimes people have this idea of, okay, now that person's really godly because they, uh, they look austere, they look uh, serious, uh, they look like no fun. <laughs> uh, they just, you know, they're just kind of, uh, they're, austere, they're just kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're the kind of person that, you know, that, that sits in their, uh, their monastery cell and just talks about things. Uh, it's kind of like the joke that I, well, I shouldn't tell a joke actually, but this, but this was actually kind of funny. But anyway, this, but, there, but that was what the monks did back in the 15th century, is that many of them thought in order to be more godly, you had to get so separated from the world that you had to live in a monastery. You couldn't be married. Um, you had to live, uh, many of them, like Martin Luther, slept on a hard rock floor. They wore uh, hairy uh, undergarments so that it would irritate their skin. Um, they, uh, they would, uh, uh, they would uh, 
refrain from eating food. I mean, they, they did all these different things, and it was all a way of saying, trying to earn their way to God, to earn salvation. It was, it was a way of, okay, if I can just do enough good things, do, and, and, and if I can just restrict the flesh to the point that I can say that, my, that I'm more holy and I deserve to be in heaven. It was kind of like it was a way of earning salvation. And, and so that, that, that kind of thing was something that was very common. And, and what Paul is saying is that, look, that kind of teaching doesn't lead to godly living. It actually does the opposite. And that was doing the opposite here in Crete. Because you notice he says that there are many who are insubordinate. He's not just saying there's a few people teaching this. He's saying there's a lot of people teaching this because guess what? If you say godliness is uh, defined by five things that you do, you can get a following because that seems so much easier than humbling myself and admitting that I'm a sinner and that the only thing that can save me is God's grace alone through Jesus Christ. It's just too humbling. But if I can some way earn my acceptance with God, it seems to feed my pride and, and it feeds my ego. And, and those are the things that Paul is saying. Look, godliness starts within your life. It, it starts with your heart attitude. Your relationship with God will work itself out in the things that you end up actually choosing to do in life. Um, let me just give you an example of, of what was happening, even like in, in Martin Luther's day, because we just sang one of his songs. And before he was saved, he was a monk, and he did those, these kinds of things. But uh, this was a French nobleman, nobleman and uh, he was considered by many people to be the most godly, one of the most godly um, externally Christians of that time. Uh, he wore unwashed clothes, crawling with lice. He put pebbles in his shoes. He slept on straw on the floor next to his wife's bed. And after his death, he was found to have worn a coarse shirt of horse hair under his armor with, with cords wound so tightly around his body that it, it dug holes into his flesh. Um, he once walked several miles to a shrine barefoot in the snow. And uh, his reputation, it says, for being such a saintly person was such that people covered the path to the shrine with straw and blankets to protect his feet. Uh, but when he found out about that, he took another path. He didn't want to do anything that would bring any comfort to him. And he confessed to a priest every night so that he would not go to sleep in a state of sin. That was, that was all the things he did to earn his salvation. But notice the other, his, his other life. He had two lives. While at the same time uh, that he was practicing externally all these things, uh, he was sleeping with other women beside his wife. He fathered several, I think, illegitimate children. Um, and when he would go to battle, he would uh, intimidate the enemy by cutting off the heads and throwing those back into the, uh, to the um, place that he was invading. Uh, and and uh, in one case, he had killed 2,000 civilians, boys, girls, men and women. Uh, so his whole religion was very external. I'm doing these things to earn my salvation while at the same time his life was de totally denying the very thing that he said he believed. Um, although his belief was basically in a man's work salvation. It was man's righteousness. It was, I'm going I'm to save myself. I'm going to be good enough to get to heaven. And that was his whole, uh, his whole drive in life. But there were many people, and there still are people that believe that salvation is by works. Grace plus works. 
right? I mean, you hear that. So, well, you know, I know that you're saved by God's grace alone, but plus your works. We would say, well, it's plus zero of my works, but all of Christ's works, right? His righteousness alone. And yet that was what was being taught. And so, so Paul is saying, look, the people that I want you to point in leadership are to be having a firm hold on the gospel. It really has to continue to, to, to be the, the thing. In other words, the thing that's going to, to refute um, false doctrine is preaching the gospel. Um, notice how he uses that word there in verse 9. He says, you must hold firm to the trustworthy word. That word hold firm there is, this, is actually to hold fast. It's the word that's used uh, when it says, the man shall leave his father and his mother and he shall hold fast to his wife. Now, why would, what that, so that word, hold fast, has this idea of something, you hold fast to something that's very precious to you, right? Is the idea. You hold, you, hold, you hold to something that you treasure. You hold to something that you need, right? That's what, what the idea of marriage is, is that two people come together, they become one, and they, he, the husband holds fast his wife. He, he's, she's endearing to him. She's, she's precious. She's... she's uh, and so he's saying that, you know, that's the same way that we are to hold on to the Bible. We're to hold on to the word of God. Isn't that interesting that he would use this kind of this, this idea that, that we are as, as believers, even as, as pastors or teachers or elders or whoever we are, we hold fast to what God says. We treasure that because it's the word of God that, that actually gives us, an, gives us really a revelation of who God is. It, it, it reveals our sinfulness. It reveals God's grace. It reveals God's mercy and his love to us. And, and it's absence of our, our works and what we do. And in this culture, see, what was happening is that they were, they were allowing someone to say, yeah, I know you need, I know you need Jesus, but I think if you if you really want to be free and you really want to be a really, really super Christian, then you need to do these things. And it, so it's, again, it's adding, even in our, we're justified by faith alone, but guess what? Our sanctification is by faith alone too. You know that? Because any obedience that doesn't flow out of faith is an obedience, right? You know, if we believe, so, you know, that faith Faith is something that's being exercised, not at just the beginning of the Christian life, but all through your Christian life, you know, is we exercise faith. Even in our growth and our, our growing as Christians, we exercise our faith. And that faith is a faith that's been given to us. It's a gift of God. Um, and, so, um, and so what he's really saying here is that he's saying that the, those who are in this position have to have an unqualified commitment to the word of God. It has to be. It can't be. It, it has to be a commitment to the gospel. It, it's, it's a realization that this word that we have has been breathed out by God. All scripture has been God breathed and is profitable for every what? Every good work. Everything that God wants to produce in your life, he's going to produce that through the word of God that we feed on. And that's why, you know, I, I, I encourage people, you know, as many, as much as you can, hear the word of God preached. Hear the word of God taught. 
Hear the word of God, read the word of God, meditate on the word of God. Um, because it's the word of God that reveals who God is. But it also, it's a mirror that shows you what your needs are as a believer. And, um, and so holding fast means you can't add to it and you can't subtract from it. Um, you know, Revelation, it says, whoever reads the book of Revelation and adds to or takes away from the book, he says, will be added curses and God's judgment on that person. So it's very, it's very, very sobering the fact that God requires that we don't add or subtract from the word of God because we live in a culture today that says, I, w I wish you were just a little less square and a little more rounded, Right. Can you just compromise a little bit on this? Can't you, just, can't you just be a little more flexible? But when it comes to the gospel, you can't. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the thing is the gospel doesn't allow us to be flexible. It doesn't allow us to compromise uh, God's truth. Um, I remember as a young man, and um, I don't know if I was, I think I was still in seminary at the time, but me and a friend, uh, we were visiting his mom, and she says, you know, you guys are such likable guys, but if you would just be a little more rounded, you're just so square, you just, you're so insistent that grace, you know, that salvation is by grace alone, and it's, it's just, could you just be a little more rounded and just, just compromise, give a little bit, you know, uh, because I don't like this idea that all men are sinners, but what does the Bible say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How, what, what can I do? It says you must be born again. I, I didn't put that in there. God did. And so really, the monkey's not on my back. All I can just say is, well, this is what it says. Thus it is written. And so the warning here is don't accommodate the gospel to fit it in necessarily with the trends. Because when we do that, we lose the gospel. And that's what was happening in Galatians. Remember, it says, they said there, it says, who has bewitched you? He says, you, uh, by, you believed in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. It says, now why are you going back to the law and to works to be made perfect or to be made righteous? And he says, by doing that, you're losing the gospel. And Paul actually calls it a gospel of another kind. And so it's, he's really concerned that uh, the Galatians were at the point of abandoning the gospel. So he's, he's warning there, and he even says that let them be accursed or anathema. Um, and so the elder, it just says that he's hold fast to that which is the word of God. And why does he need to do that? He needs to be able to do two things, it says. He needs to encourage people. And he also needs to warn people. So, you know, when, uh, I mean, how often uh, have you been in those situations where, you know, you've been discouraged and someone would either send a card or someone would call and they say, I was just reading this verse. And it was just the verse that God was going to use to encourage and strengthen, to, you know, just to kind of re help you refocus. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it amazing how God uses, he'll use the scriptures to bring comfort and to bring encouragement. And that's the idea that the word encouragement there is actually, it's a word that Paul would say it's to build up, but it's actually, it means to come alongside somebody and to share with them God's good news, God's word, and to, uh, to, to encourage them. Uh, Paul says it like this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, to be patient with them all. So when we think about it, People are going through what? Fear, discouragement. Um, uh, many times there, you know, there's 
there's all kinds of things happening in their life. Um, you know, I was just thinking of that family just lost a child on, you know, uh, and, and I thought, you know, just to come to the end of the day and get a call like that. I mean, you know, just the trauma that they're going through. And uh, I don't know if they had a pastor or not, but uh, you would hope that that person would be able to bring some comfort from God's word. God is a refuge, even in our crisis, even in our moments of, of, of direst need, uh, the Lord is there. And so he's just basically saying you need to know that word because that's the word that people need to hear to be encouraged. But they also need to know it because if you don't know that word, then people are, you're not going to be able to refute falsehood. And the false, the false teaching here was basically this. It was basically that they were, they were, these were, I would call them Jewish Christians. Some of them were Jewish Christians who believed that you also needed to be circumcised to be saved. I mean, he even mentions that here. Um, he talks about the, that, uh, he says, rebuke them there in verse 13. The testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply. That they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people. So there's, so there's that aspect of it. And then early on in verse 11, they must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So not only was it actually impacting the church, it was dividing the church. It was causing division in the church here. And Paul, and Paul is saying, look, you need to be able to contradict what they're saying because these are people who are coming in. And notice he calls them, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. And he's just basically saying they're not, an insubordinate person is saying, look, I don't like authority. What authority do you think they don't like? The authority of scripture, <laughs> the authority of the word of God. And, and so he's saying, look, these are insubordinate people. They, they, will not, they will not bow the knee to the authority of Christ and to the lordship of Christ. They're not going to do that. And he's saying that, and they're, and they're empty talkers. They're, they're, they're people who use words and flowery words to, and it's almost like it's words, but they don't have any substance to them is the idea. Uh, and, and they're people who are deceptive. They, they put on an appearance of being godly, uh, but are not. And he's just saying those that, you, you know, you need to have an understanding because they're out there for one purpose alone, and that is they're looking for gain. And the gain here is, is, is not, you know, not, it could be money. It could be power. It could be control. It could be getting approval. In other words, if I don't, if I don't tell you that you're a sinner that's... That uh, needs to be saved by grace alone. Um, if I know that uh, these people that he's working with, these are, these are believers, but they still have a long ways to go in growing in their, in their Christian life. And he's, but uh, if, if he could tell them things that would just make them feel good, it could be for personal gain. I mean, who do you like the most? The person that comes to you and... and um, I don't know if you ever had a friend close enough to rebuke you <laughs> or somebody that would appreciate, you know, you, you lo loved you enough to say something that was hard to swallow. Um, there's not too many people that do that, but I, but I think that there are, when that, when that does happen, um, first of all, it takes the wind out of us <laughs> and then it makes us angry. But if we really stop to think about it, if a person's truly a friend, that they love you enough that they risk their friendship to tell you the truth. Isn't that what Jesus does? He, he tells us the truth about ourselves 
But in doing that, we realize that he only loves us, not to, not to destroy us, but to show us our need of the cross. See, that's, that's, that's the beauty of it is that he shows us, he puts this mirror up and you go like, you mean I have those sin problems in my life? <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, but then he says, but here's the cross. This is why I needed to come. Because without that sacrifice, you couldn't be saved. You have to be perfect to be saved. And there's nobody that did that except Jesus Christ. And so that's why to know that scripture then is also to be able to refute those. In other words, to see when people are stepping outside the gospel. I mean, like, uh, for example, turn over to Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 2. And I think I know that uh, you're going through Colossians. But notice what was happening. The same thing was happening in Colossae. Um, in chapter 2 um, and uh, verse, nine, uh, verse 16, it says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about their visions or about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensual mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourishes and knit together through its joints and ligaments. And then notice, drop down there and it says verse 21. So, so what they were teaching is do not handle, do not taste, do not touch all externals referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. And then he says, these have an indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But notice, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, asceticism and externalism and in this case, we would call that legalism, okay? Legalism is just saying, you can do something to earn God's favor. That's legalism, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's taught. You, you think, well, you know, that's not taught. Well, yeah. <laughs> In fact, they were, but it has no power to really produce godly, a godly life. It doesn't have any power to enable you to say no to ungodliness. I mean, that's what Paul says in Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says that the grace of God has appeared unto all men, to all people, teaching us to deny ungodly lust. Did you know that grace is a teacher? And what it's saying is, look, you have everything you need in Christ, so you don't need, let's just say, you don't need this. You don't need to do this. Why? Because your sufficiency is in Christ. So I, so even though it's not saying that I'm still not going to be tempted, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to struggle. But guess what? My identity is in my union with Jesus. And I think that, to me, it, uh, it, so, so Paul is addressing a couple of things here, I think. One of the things I think he's, he's, he's addressing with, with just focusing on this is he's addressing the fact that our new identity is not in the old creature anymore, is it? You have become new. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus, he's saying. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, you know, you have, he says, you're not the old creation anymore. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And that means your identity is different. Now, I can say that, in other words, I, yes, I'm a sinner saint. 
I've got two identities, and we all struggle with that, right? I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace, but I'm also a saint. That word saint means I've been set apart. I'm holy. And you're going like, I don't feel very holy. And yet we are. And what, what happens is that when Christians begin to struggle in the Christian life, they begin to doubt, am I a believer or not? No, that's one of the reasons you are a believer is that as a believer, you struggle with sin, right? That which I would not do, I do. And that which I would not do, that which I, you know, I should do, I don't do. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, oh, wretched man that I am. Romans chapter 7, we have this battle with the flesh. And why? Because, because we know that we are new creatures in Christ. We have a desire to please God. But guess what? We still struggle with sin. And so, so as, a, as a believer, yes, I mean, I, I'm still going to be tempted. I'm still going to struggle. But that struggle is an indication that God's at work in my life. Did you know that? Even when you fell, you kind of like, man, I fell again. <laughs> you know, this same struggle. I keep, I keep, you know, have you just repeated the sin? And, you know, it's like, I lost my temper again. <laughs> and then you, and you say, I lost it again. And I lost it again. And I lost it again. And you're going like, Lord, when are am I going to be a little more holy? And God's saying, I'm still working on you, brother. <laughs> but it takes time, doesn't it? It's a process. Sanctification is that process. And Paul's not giving up on these people. Notice what he talks about. He says, he says you know, this, this philosopher said, Cretans are liars, lazy, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How'd you like people to call you that? <laughs> you go like, uh, that's not a compliment. But these are believers that Paul's saying, look, just because they're calling you that doesn't mean that's your identity. You have a new identity in Christ, right? You were once that, but you're not that anymore. I turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I, I, I just want to hit on the, the identity issue, and I, I think we'll probably have to cut it short here because I prepare for three messages every time. I mean, even though I cut them and I cut them and I cut them, I think about, okay, no, I want to add this. No, I want to take that. No. So I'm, I'm uh, winging it here. But notice um, chapter 6. Because I hear this from people all the time. This is the struggle that people are having. Um, do you not know, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were what? Some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So you are no longer identified as that person. Yes, yes, I was a drunkard. Yes, I did have, I was immoral. Yes, I did do those things. But guess what? If you are in Christ, your, your new identity is that you are united to Christ. That's your new identity. You don't say, well, I'm just... You know, I'm, I'm still this. He's saying, no, that's what you once were. But as a Christian, did that all of a sudden you steal all those desires, all the stop? I mean, you know, do, do, you know, do you, did, did all those, in other words, they are, they are lazy, they're, glut, they're gluttons, they're, you know, they're, they're liars. Guess what? There's, it's going to take a while for that to work themselves out in that, right? But they're believers still struggling with sin. And that's the big difference there. 
You know, a, a believer is going to struggle with sin. They're going to confess sin. They're going to repent of sin. They're going to say, Lord, I, I, I can't do it on my own. And, G, and Jesus is saying, yes, I've just been trying to tell you that all along. You need to depend on me. That's why God gives us the Holy Spirit. That's why God gives us the Word of God. That's why God gives us people who will encourage and who will, you know, come alongside and say, look, you know, I know I've been there where you were, and I still, I still struggle in some areas of my life, right? I mean, if I ask my, I mean, is there anybody that doesn't struggle? Raise their hand. <laughs> but isn't that the beauty of grace? Grace doesn't say, well, you just got to walk straight. You got to talk. You have to, you know, you have to just do us things a certain way. Grace actually gives us liberty because we've been set free from the bondage and the guilt of sin. And then it also gives us more and more power over sin in our life. It doesn't happen all the time. And sometimes when we're, we're thinking that, well, Lord, I'm really doing good now. That's when we fall. <laughs> That's when I, you know, that's usually when I fall on my face. And that's what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to say, look, don't let somebody come to you telling you you need to go beyond the gospel in your life. I think this is one of the things that, that I'm, I hear a lot, and that is this. You've been saved by God's grace. Now just keep the law. Well, guess what? <laughs> To love God with all my heart, might, and soul. Anybody do that perfectly? That doesn't mean that I don't want to because I have a new nature. Guess what? Because I'm born again, I, I, I want to love God more. And I want to love my neighbor more. But guess what? I don't do that perfectly. I don't love my neighbor as myself. And that's why he says to the pure, all things are pure. He's not saying to the holy, sinless people, things are holy and sinless. He's saying to the pure, to those, to those who have been sanctified and who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Guess what? You live in a world in which you touch different things. In other words, for example, I could give you a good... One of the, the most beautiful things that God's given to mankind is sex. To the pure are things of pure. But he's put that in the context of what? Biblical marriage between a man and a woman. That's a beautiful thing. But it's in the context of marriage. It's in the context of commitment. It's in, so, so here's a very holy, pure thing. And what does man's heart do, does? He defiles it by immoral actions, by adultery and other things. He in other words, and where did that come from? Was that an external thing? No. Jesus said, out of the heart comes adultery, immorality. It's a heart issue. So where do you think sanctification begins? It begins in your heart. <laughs> you got to have a new heart, right? Hebrews chapter 8, that the new covenant was about God giving you a new heart. It's called being born again. It's being regenerated. <laughs> It's, it's the, the spirit of God coming and living in your life and is going like, boy, I've got a lot of cleanup to do in this person. <laughs> Can you imagine the, the God of heaven, the, one of the persons of the Trinity coming to live in your heart and you're going like, man, there's a lot of mess I got to clean up in that guy. And what does he start doing? He works on three things. He works on your mind, your will, and um, your affections. I mean, think about it. Romans 12, 1. 
I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is holy, acceptable, pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service of war. He says, he says, present it as a holy offering. He says, and be not conformed to the world, but what? Be transformed by the what? Renewing your mind. Why don't we study the Bible? Mind renewal. Because <laughs> in here, I know what pleases God. That's why I need to be in the book. Every Christian needs to be in the book. It's not, it's not like, well, how much do I need to know? And, and, and do I need to know this much more to be holy? No, it's just that the more you read, the more you want. <laughs> it's like a baby with milk. You know, you, you, you can never get too much. And, and then, and then we got, God begins to work on the will. You know, because, you know, just this, you know, this tendency to want to do it myself. Lord, I think I can do it. I'll, I'll call you, Jesus. I'll, I'll pray about this later. You know, uh, kids are good about this when they, they see that, you know, when we're in a, have you ever been in a crisis situation? Your kid says, Daddy, I think we should pray. And you're like, I know, but I'm in the crisis. Don't you see that? And it's like, well, maybe I should be praying. <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't have time to do that. But, uh, but, but all of those things. So, so Paul is saying, look, the gospel is not about going beyond it. It's going deeper. If there was anything I said in this message today, I would just say to all of us, the gospel and our relationship with Jesus is not about, it's not about going beyond getting more mature. I want, I want to have visions. I want to have all this, all this experience stuff up here. And what God is saying, no, go deeper in your relationship with God through the word. Now, as you do that, that experience obviously will come about. But for each of us, it's going to be different, isn't it? Your experience of Jesus' presence is going to be a little different than mine. I'm a different kind of person. You're a different kind of person. But what the gospel, what growing as a Christian is, go, is about going deeper into Christ, going deeper into the word, having the word go deeper in you. Because as it goes deeper, guess what? You start seeing stuff you didn't think was bad. I, I mean, I didn't think it was that, all that bad before. <laughs> you start going like, wow, you know, I didn't even think that. I never thought about that being, I mean, I never, did, does everyone, did anyone ever see their selfishness before they had children? <laughs> I need my comfy chair and I need my time and I don't like to be interrupted. And boy, I tell you, children, all of a sudden you realize, man, I, I really, <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I mean, think about a mom. How many times does she have to say no to herself to really minister and to care for that little one? How many times do you have to say no to yourself? I, I know I want that, but I'm going to say no. Why? Because of somebody else. That's God's love working in your heart. It's changing you. What's, what's the renewal all about? It's, it's transforming you from one stage of glory to another stage of glory so that you become more like Christ. And you could, you could put it in a, in a definition, fruit of the Spirit, Right? More love, more joy, more peace, more long-suffering, more gentleness, more meekness, self-control. And you're going like, well, that's exactly what Paul keeps saying to the, to the, to, 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 in Titus. The biggest problem there was a lack of self-control. He keeps saying it about 10 times in the book. You ever notice that? Self-control, self-control. Uh, older men teach younger men self-control. Older women teach younger women self-control. And you're going like, what's this thing about self-control? <laughs> it, it's the fruit of the Spirit. 
And God working in that culture and working in those lives and bringing them more into conformity with the person and work of Christ. Um, I wasn't going to end that way, but I'm going to end because uh, um, I, uh, I'm going to stop there. I, I had a couple of things I wanted to say, but I'm just going to stop right there and just uh, and let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the promises that you've given us in your word. And Father, I just want to, I just want to be growing in, in uh, love for you and in love for your word. Uh, Father, I pray this for each one of us here. Father, none of us are where we, uh, where we were, uh, but we're not what we're going to be. But I thank you that you don't give up, Lord. You uh, tell us to hold fast the word, but that's only because you're holding us fast. That our salvation is not a work of men, it's a work of God. And that you've begun it, you'll continue it, and you'll complete it in the day of Christ. And for this, we give you the glory. Amen.